Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Stuart Wright of Britflix.com podcast and I wanted to put this introduction before you start listening as a little bit of an apology. Um... We recorded this podcast over Skype and occasionally the broadband signal drops out. It only really affects about four little bits in the 40 minutes of the podcast. I try to edit it as best I could. It is largely fine. So you should be able to enjoy Toby Amos talking about his documentary, The Man Whose Head Exploded. It's the podcast. Britflix.com podcast. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today with me I've got Toby Amos. Hello Toby. Hello, thanks for having me. It's all right, glad to uh, catch you while you're at a yacht club. Not someone yes, you're always yeah. going to be, is it? <laughs> There's something quite odd about being £25,000 in debt and hanging out at a yacht club. Yeah, it's not really my usual location, but uh, it's all been spent on the film. Um, so... <laughs> Now the I film mean, we've... to be honest, looking looking around here, I reckon there's like at least about ten boats that would fund an entire documentary if you sold them. I'm sure, and, and then some. Yeah. Well, look, we're we're here to talk about your documentary film, The Man Whose Mind Exploded. Yes. Do you want to give us a brief summary of that? Well, I mean, I suppose um, it's. Uh about documentaries is that people treat them, treat them as, a, as a genre but actually it's one of the few genres left in film you have a tremendous amount of freedom so I suppose my film call it a movie you could call it a love story you could call it a biopic but it's really just about my relationship with an extraordinary man called Draco Oho Zar Hazar and he's extraordinary for several reasons primarily because he's just like an extraordinary just a brilliant, brilliant character. But he also has um, quite severe brain damage, which has given him what is anti-regrade amnesia, which is make, makes it hard for him to record new memories. One of the taglines we have for the film is that he can remember working with Salvador Dali, but he can't remember yesterday. And then um, he also has this, this biography where he did work with Dali and also Jared Malanga, Warhol's filmmaker, Derek Jarman, ostensibly he sold, well apparently he sold drugs to the Rolling Stones at one point um, danced at the Poly Berger and the London Palladium and then, uh, and then became a life model in, in Brighton and as he, say, he, as he says he retired from the stage um, and now the world is his stage so he's a sort of perfect person to, to point a camera at because he really enjoys the attention but really the film is about me caring for someone who's perhaps not caring for themselves and that dynamic's going to be familiar i guess for anyone who um who's in one of those kind of relationships perhaps with an aged parent or in my case i had a my sister was very ill and um so that was the dynamic that was familiar to me 
Okay, well, look, we'll come, we'll come back and talk about the film in more detail. Um, can you can you describe sort of what or who was a kind of trigger point for you to want to make documentary a documentary film? Um, I think it was. Uh... Well, I, su I suppose that the film that first had like a really, really profound effect on me was Werner Herzog's The Enigma of Casper House, which isn't really a documentary, but it is, it's a story about a phenomenon. It's a, you know, it's a mystery story. And, um, and I guess it was that that appealed to me, but thinking about it more, well, you know, being, being forced to think about it by your questions, Joe, I think the, the thing for me that resonates with documentaries is is that they don't they don't necessarily follow a formula. You know, in there's that you know, it's the cliche that truth is stranger than fiction, but it's that mm. is very much true with documentaries. And I suppose the fact that Cass you couldn't make a documentary really about Casa because of there's just not enough material there, but but that film to me was a bit like a documentary, and then and then subsequently, a lot of Herzog's films, particularly Little Dieter Needs to Fly, Little, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, um, really really sort of moved me and gripped me, and then a lot of Harold Morris ones as well. So, so I mean, those are the people that kind of inspired me to make documentaries, but with specifically regard to the one that we just. That I've just finished. Um, the main influence was Ross McElwee's Sherman's March, which again is a film which ostensibly is about one thing, General Sherman's March through the South, the end of the mm. Civil War. But really, it's about the filmmaker trying to find himself a girlfriend. And I suppose that both the kind of intimacy of that film inspired me and also that sense that you could make a film about something else than that which you appeared to be doing mm. and also appealed to me. And I noticed there was a kind of four-year period to make this film, which is kind, yeah. of like, it's like the, it's like, kind of like the inverse of making a feature film, isn't it, where a narrative one, you might spend four years trying to get everything together to make it, then you spend maybe six weeks shooting it, and then you've still spent four years, but, but you don't have yes. that kind of momentum of energy to get to release. So... What what do you what do you do for four years making a film with somebody or a film about somebody? Well, I mean, you know, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You are indeed, yes. Okay, well, basically, I didn't have any fucking idea what I was doing. If I'm okay. honest, I mean, I kind of started off making a film about Draco because I thought it was going to be about working with Dali and dancing at the Palladium and so on. But actually, partly because of the way that he accessed those memories, that were kind of sort of not dead, but sort of very kind of static, inert. And um, so so they got to a point with making the film where I was like, oh, I don't really know how this is going. But by that point, my relationship with Draco was, was sufficiently strong. Um, not in any kind of sexual way, but I just, I just felt a degree of obligation towards him that meant that I just went to keep on going. I went on to visit him because I thought that was the appropriate thing to do, just on a sort of interpersonal level. Um, and then I just, I just kept, kept a camera with me on the off chance that, that something filmable would, would happen. But I felt an obligation to him. And that, I suppose, is... Um, you know, that's probably a reaction to my background in television, where so often in, in 
supposedly documentary things. They'll, people will sort of turn up and suck a piece of somebody's life into the camera and then piss off again without really any concern for their, their subject. And, and I wanted to have a different approach to that. So, so a lot of that four years was really just being in a friendship with Draco but just taking a camera along with me. And then when, when things changed, that's the point at which I thought, well, is there actually a film here? And then once we... Um, you'll see that there's a sort of... An, in the film, there's a major event, shall we say. I don't want to give it away, but mm. we kind of reverse-engineered the film back from that. But, I mean, that's certainly the appeal for documentaries for me, is that you can just get out there and do them um, without having to consistently ask people for their permission to do the thing that you're meant to be doing, just make a film. Yeah, because there's, there's no real reason beyond you and him wanting to do it, whereas like you described before in your sort of TV presenting times or other things that you would have seen, it's usually we need to get this thing, so we get someone in a room and we talk to them and they piss off. Um, whereas, yeah. I mean, friend, friends of mine, so the reason it was interesting you spent four years, friends of mine are just at the end of four years following Chris Farlow, the singer, um, mm. and, and doc, document what started off as a friend of mine sharing a warehouse with him and then found him an interesting fellow. I didn't even know he was like a 60s icon. Yeah. And then finding this out and then get behind a camera and get that idea of not having a clue what you're doing, but what the hell, this is a good relationship, let's see where it goes. And he didn't mind. A bit funny, a bit like Draco in some senses in the sense that, because in a film you ask him a number of times about whether it's okay to film him, mm. he's almost ambivalent to it, isn't he? It's kind of... It, it doesn't. It, it, he enjoys it in the moment, but obviously, with this the the amnesia that he's got, it, it, it's almost it's, it's meaningless because it's gone once he's once the memory, once the moment's passed. Isn't yeah, it? although although because of his because of his sort of you know his very clear and consistently repeated philosophy of living in the moment, then I think it's also appropriate to it to accept what what he says in the moment and yeah. and certainly at the time. Uh, it was clear that he was he was comfortable with the process, but the I mean the ethics of it were very important to me, um, and as a consequence, I, I I made sure that that not only Draco gave me permission, but the people who care about him um, also were aware as to what I was doing and, and that they were comfortable with it. That was that was an essential oh, part. Oh so, no, of the no, process. sorry, sorry, Tommy, it wasn't it wasn't to suggest the sort of oh no no I know that I just I just I always like to make that clear because because. You know, we do sort of, we, we play on those notions in the film as well. We, we want to make people think about, about the, the ethics of the process as well. So um, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm not being touchy. <laughs> so, how did, um, so how did the four-year... I'm just kidding. How did the four-year relationship start then? What, what, what was this... Was it a relationship I, saw him, I saw him cycle past me in Kemptown in Brighton where I used to live, you know, which is a okay. kind of... Uh, you know, almost a rest home for eccentrics anyway. And yeah. I was like, wow, who the hell is that? You know, it was Cape. The Cape on a bicycle is just a, it's a fantastic look. As long as you don't, yeah. as long as you, you don't do a Sandra Bernhardt and get it caught in the, um, is it Sandra Bernhardt? Uh, yeah, and get it caught in spokes or anything. Um, full makeup and stuff. And I was like, bloody, you know, that, oh, that's just amazing. Fantastic. Good job. And then, um, and then a friend of mine got some money to make a short film for his band to perform in front of and, and suggested we use Tracker. And when I put two and two together, I was like, wow, that's going to be great. And so we made the short 
um, with him in it. And then I took some photographs of him. And then I just I pitched it to Radio Four because I just thought he's just you know he's got this really really amazing biography mm. and a fantastic way of life. Um, so that got turned into Radio Four documentary. But that was very much more about his his biography. It wasn't so much about our relationship. And then when that got broadcast, people really liked it or liked him really. Mm. And um, and suggested I make a film about it, and then that's when I that's what I started. And I think I think you know even though I said I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, I think the the thing that that kind of kept me going, and also I think works effectively as a film, is a is a friend of mine, Dolly Thompson, a painter, just sort of said to me, like you know you've got this most amazing subject. <laughs> Don't try and impose a story on him. Don't try and impose a narrative or an aesthetic. You know, let him be your guide. Let him be the one mm. that um, that sort of creates the shape of the film, as it were. And I think that that also comes from my background as a photographer, a, a portrait photographer. Is I just think that like photos are best when they when they are a sort of record of the relationship of the photographer and the subject, if it's an empathetic one. And, and as a consequence, once you, if you, if you, if you aim to have a good relationship and, and consequently a good photo, then it really has to be a collaboration. You have to give up control of power to your subject. Um, and that's how, that's the way I like to do it. So it's kind of once, even though it's quite a terrifying thing to do when you don't really know what you're doing, is to give up as much, you know, that much control. Um, I think it makes for better work, generally speaking. That's, I mean, that, that um, sounds a lot like um, you, 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 rather than not know what you're doing, you didn't know what it, bec- you didn't know what it could become. So I guess that's... I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I do sort of wander around thinking I don't know what I'm doing most of the time anyway, so that's my kind of default. But yes, I mean, certainly, certainly it's sort of, um, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, I think there's a great vogue at the moment for making documentaries, which are kind of, you get the sense that they're pretty much a fait accompli when they're being pitched. Um, people already know what the stories are before they get made. And, mm. and I don't blame people for not, not um, funding ones where you sort of go, well, he's a really interesting chap, and I want to spend some time with him, <laughs> and hopefully <laughs> something something will happen. You can kind of understand why those documentaries don't be made in the traditional fashion, but but I think they are the most interesting ones, you know. Yeah, yeah, because I, I watched the um, Twenty Feet from Stardom, mm. won the Oscar, and for two thirds of the film, there's something quite wonderful going on. And then it turns into a quite a contrived film about modern day backing singers wanting to be solo singers, which is nothing like the story of black women being exploited in the sixties, which is where it starts. And you kinda of go Right. That's not really you're not really telling me much there, are you? That singers struggle. <laughs> you know, it's not news, is it? No, no, not really. I mean it's sort of um I, yeah, I I haven't I haven't seen the fact that film, so I can't really comment on it. No problem, no problem. Um as as a as a f- as a viewer watching you with Draco, I got the sense that you were kind of, there was a 50-50 split between you being a documentary filmmaker on the one hand and also seeming like a care assistant or a care worker. Um, you, as much as you might have been probing for questions and looking for answers, you were also, for, certainly for what we see in the film, showing just absolute concern for his well-being and... And in many senses, almost like the way the way you were repeating yourself in some senses was was showing us the audience 
the, set, the, the, the reality of that of the amnesia that he suffers from. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's definitely. I suppose if there is a device in the film, there's that thing where I I consistently walk up. You know, you you see the walks up to to Drax's flat um, repeated, mm. and that's partly to sort of give you the sense that, like, for him, it's just same thing happening over and over again in a way mm. um, and also the degree to which it sort of becomes you know going into that environment and it's, it's an extraordinary environment it's very disorientating and, and almost hallucinatory as well um, mm. because in order to understand him you have to kind of get into his mindset a bit and realize you know, that he is forgetting stuff you know within minutes as it's, as it's moving forward so um yeah, I suppose, I mean, there is, yes, very much so. There is the dynamic is, am I a filmmaker? Am I a carer? But I suppose the thing that I really wanted to do when I was making that film, and certainly it was something, it was one of the things that we we wanted to make sure came through once we've edited the film, is the kind of real-lifeness of it, the intimacy of it. And, and fortunately, because of the... Well, partly because of the relationship I had with Draco, but also because of my my background as a as a photographer there's a sort of there's a, a literal and metaphorical closeness um that those things can afford that that sort of really get you in there with draco and so when jim scott the editor and i were making it in the shed in my garden that was the thing we were just like keep it you know it's got to be real it's got to be real the whole way through um and i think that's that's the film's strength to me is you do get a lot of the film is about making a documentary, but nevertheless, an awful lot of about it is just is like is I'm taking the audience into that relationship as close as I can get them, mm. um, which is like I think very frustrating for them at times, but other times it's quite inspirational. And and you know, Draco's a funny motherfucker, so that's the best thing about it is that is that he provides his own light relief the whole way through. We're sort of struggling with him. Yeah, I think it's it's almost like I think our concern for that. The illness that he suffers from, as it were, or condition, is isn't obviously bothering him for, for obvious reasons because it's, it's it's just what he lives with, and he see because he has that living in the moment philosophy, he seems to be permanently having fun. He doesn't seem yeah. concerned, and you know, despite his living conditions, despite his ill health. Yeah, he seems he does seem pretty comfortable with himself. I mean, there is a point where he refers to having ten years of depression as well, though. But I mean, that's not in the film, fortunately. And um, and you know, I don't know how much of the the neuropsychologist we worked with on the film, Martin Conway, suggested that that particular condition that Draco had meant that like his recall of memories wasn't wasn't the same as as a sort of a, a traditional brain's recall of memories in the sense that like. It was almost like he was referring to himself as as a third person there. Um, so it wasn't like when he's sort of telling you about working with Dali, he wasn't reliving it per se. He's just kind of narrating it. And, and wow. so, so you know, I don't know to what degree Drac can actually sort of... It's like if you and I, you know, like a method actor would, if you sort of recall a negative emotion... I don't know if Drac actually was really capable of doing that, which, you know, I don't think in a way is a good thing. And I've heard subsequently, um, actually it was Mark Kermode who said that, that, that a lot of the, the treatment for dementia is to encourage people to live in the moment. Um, but that's also, 
I'm a little wary about it because most of the time you it's hippies that talk about it, but it's I think it's a pretty good way for anybody to move forward, isn't it? Just be in the moment all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, a, a, a guy I work with is he constantly um, keeps saying this. It's this idea of we live in a world where we're constantly reminded that there's something better around the corner, so we we never enjoy that cup of tea, or we don't enjoy that afternoon with a friend. We could we could be on we could be out in Africa, or we could be this, or we could be in a faster car. You know, it never never is enough. Yeah. So so what you're saying, Stuart, is that the notion of the future is just yet another one of those capitalist lies designed to turn us into slaves. I've seen they live by John Carpenter. So yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, I said, I've seen they live by John Carpenter. So yes, <laughs> yes, that that I think is my favourite documentary of all time. <laughs> if only we could make the documentary of putting the glasses on. Yes, yeah, it is a true story though that they live. I think. <laughs> so uh, you you are talking. You've mentioned a few people here who you've been involved with it, in terms of assessing the information you got from spending four years with Draco and editing it down. How how. How long was that process? And given you said at the start you felt you didn't know what you were doing, as a sense, what do you feel that was like a lesson learned as a documentary filmmaker at the end of it? Well, I think I have to say that, like, you know, that it's, I've sort of been directing various things with, with I was going to say varying degrees of success, but with, without much success at all. Mm. For for about ten years, and okay. the big thing that I learned on this film, because it was sort of ultimately, I was a producer on it, and I would recommend any director to be a producer on their own film. It requires being a bit more grown up and reading way more spreadsheets than anyone should have to, <laughs> but but it, it just made a massive difference because because that sort of what what happened is that is that they <laughs> I had total creative control on this yeah. film. I got some money, we had some support from the Love and Trust, they never appeared, and, and like it from Screen South and a bit from the Arts Council, which may have meant to go from, that was meant to be on another project, but I sort of siphoned it in. Hmm. Um, it was self-funded in terms of, and I had a legacy from my sister, and then I just, all of my time in for free. So nobody, nobody was actually breathing down my neck and saying, this will do that, or no, there were no other agendas involved in this film being as good as it possibly could be. Hmm. And... And I was just used to, in an institutional context, whenever I was working in, there's a point to what I'm saying, I know it's taking forever to get there, but I was used to kind of working in opposition to, to bosses or what people said. To, and what I did on this film was, with Jim, we sort of got to a cut and showed it to a bunch of people. But because, because the only thing I had at stake was it being good as possible, was that if somebody said, oh, I don't know if that scene's working, or what about if you do this? I didn't go, how dare you tell me what to do with your corporate or whatever. It's like, oh, let's have a look. <laughs> and, and so when you said, there's a, there's a really good joke. Haven't how do you change a light bulb, Toby? Well, well, a director would answer to that good one. I think, as, I don't know, what, what do you think? You just field as many opinions as you possibly can yeah. and, and then feed those into the vision for the film. That's 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 the thing that I learned really. So I don't think I I haven't got some brittle notion of what the film is that that I fight off all comers to protect. I just try and make the film as good as it possibly can be for the audience and get as many people as many opinions as I can cope with to do that. Mm. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so that's the big thing that I learned, I suppose, was that sort of flexibility and that openness of, of perspective. Um, well, and I've, I've listened to, I mean, it's a, probably a crass example, but I listened to interviews with um, George Romero talking about making Land of the Dead, which was his first mm. studio picture, and it was the first time he'd ever had scenes designed by committee, so he couldn't right. improvise ever on set because everything had been signed off. And it was kind of, he said it was the craziest thing he'd ever done. He'd be on a boat going between two locations and suddenly realised there was a brilliant scene he could do, but not be able to film it because it hadn't been signed off by the studio. Yeah. You you, you kind of wonder as to what the logic is there. What's that? I say you kind of wonder what the logic is there in terms of making films if you can't. Well, I I don't think logic in making films, is there? I mean, there are so many in a big film that... um, it's difficult. I mean, you know, there, there are pulled up funds with the intention of not making back. There what, sorry? So, so how, I said there are people who fund films with the intention of making a loss. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I, have I lost you again? No, no, you were there with that one. Keep with that again. Okay. Yeah, so, so, I mean, yes, it's sort of, I think the key, to this, the key thing for me was having creative control allowed me feels opinions um but if you don't have creative control and then you get caught on the committee you know, that has to be a nightmare isn't that the point at which you just agree to everything but just to go on ahead and do exactly what you want i think that's isn't true that- yeah so um when um it's it, it's it, it premiered at various um pitch house chains and certainly as part of the eastern film festival just recently and now yes. the film is going to be available video on demand and DVD, is that right? Uh, it's not going to be on DVD, actually, because we can't really... It's such a low-budget production, we can't really justify the, the capital outlay to do okay. that. But, um, uh, so, yeah, it's going to go out on iTunes, Amazon, Blinkbox, and Dogwolf TV. We're being distributed by Dogwolf. Okay, in, cool. I, th- I think around the 11th of July. Um, and then it will also be playing... At the Port Elliot Festival in July, and then we are actually going to look into sort of doing some more independent distribution to some because there are lots of like 100% independent cinemas out there, mm. and and I would love to get the film to play in theirs, those as well. So, and now we've got all the bits and pieces we need to do that. We can we can send posters and and DCPs out to people. Yeah, well, um, I'm in I'm in. Um... Late in East London, and up the road from me, we've got the Stowe Lounge, which is a kind of completely independent pop-up cinema with, uh, you know, a decent-sized screen and a good room. But it's got oh, will you put in a to do with word one. For us, Say what? Will you put in a word for us? I will, certainly will. I certainly will, Thank and, if you, and I'll give them your details if uh, if it uh, if it appeals to them. But yeah, they've, they've shown documentaries before, and they they tend to put on sort of theme the theme nights around it. I'm not sure you could do it with yours, but. Um, I mean, I realised as I was saying that it was sounding more ridiculous as I went. It was best to shut up. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the, with the man whose mind exploded, you, you you have to make people aware that it's full of cocks and balls, as well as love and and themes of of memory and care. But uh, Drac was Drac had his particular passions. Well, I mean, the thing. I mean, the, one of the things that first crossed my mind when I, when I saw the title of the film was uh, The Fall Song, The Man Whose Head Expanded. That, that, that crossed my mind first. Um, yes. Was that ever a title you played with? <laughs> uh, well, not really, but I'm fairly sure that, that I... Um, 
I stole uh, the man whose mind exploded from the man whose head expanded. It's almost certain. That's but the you know talent borrows and genius steals, isn't it? So yeah. Well, you've um, kind of just wavered enough. It's it's. Uh... Yeah. Um, um, so for for, um, for sort of budding documentary filmmakers, we've we've kind of we've kind of covered the idea of keeping in control of. Um, of what you're trying to do and not worrying too much about pleasing others. So the more that you're in control of that process, the, the better you will. I guess the more you can enjoy the film and the more you can reason with it when the time is right for you, I guess is what you're saying, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm saying, I'm saying don't, don't enter it into an with an expectation of making any money. Oh. Um, if you expect to make a wage, then you have to expect somebody to want to get involved in the creative process if they're paying you paying you to do it. I don't think that's unreasonable on anybody's behalf, but um, yes, so, and, and you know, be kind and ethical whilst you're making, if you're making it about people, then I think you have a responsibility to do right by those people, but perhaps the most important thing is to um, is not, when you say please yourself, of course you have to, it has to be your point of view, and I think you have to be honest about your subjectivity, but but I think the thing that Jim and I did when we were cutting it, is the whole way through we were thinking about what the audience's experience was going to be and that's the thing that's quite hard to keep in mind on set, I think but um, I, I you know, I kind of have a sense of somebody sort of almost on my shoulder, but also I kind of I really want, I want to take the audience into my head and into my heart as as I'm interacting with somebody. That's my kind of thing. So see so, so please yourself, you I think it's very important to be aware of what the audience's experience is because that's where that's where film really live. You know, it, it's tempting to see them as being a phenomenon just of the screen, but the screen is actually merely the thing that gets all the thoughts and emotions going inside the head. So that's that's really where I think is, if is, is that, about it, you have to think about it. Yeah, is that is that then you know what I mean? I'm, I don't want to give too many spoilers away about the, about the uh, content of the film, but but certainly there's a moment where you turn the camera on yourself, and that feels <laughs> as though you're doing that for us as much as for yourself. It's sort of like to let us know. Hey, Absolutely, you're, that's. That's the point where I just think I think it's like I'm, I'm by doing that I'm actually it's not really, it's even though the camera turns on me what I want you to do is see things from Draco's perspective at that point and yeah. and sort of turn the tables in there um, and and that was the point where I was just like I've had enough I don't think you're being you know I didn't think Draco was being fair to me so I wanted I wanted the audience to experience you know hit literally his point of view. Mm. Um. Um, with, with with his condition, um, I, I I felt that it was it, it, on the one hand it's terrifying the notion that you won't be able to form new, mer- new memories, but equally you could say that it's quite liberating not to be bogged down yeah. with you know you, you can just part part your life you can get on with life as you go forward, but you're not actually accumulating any more baggage as, as such. Um, I've been observed him for such close hand. What, what did you feel? How did you feel about the condition? What did you learn about it? Maybe about yourself, I suppose. Well, I think I think that. Um, I mean, working with somebody who is as, as you know, albeit wonderful, but also as difficult as Drac, who 
was the the sort of what I learned primarily was was acceptance. You know, a, a, a lot of the film is about the degree to which you kind of get involved with somebody's care, mm. but also the degree to which you, after a while, you also go with their consent, you sort of go, well, if this is how you want to live, it may be damaging to you, but if it's how you want to live, then I'm respectful of that, and and, and, and I accept that. So that's the kind of big thing that, that I learned in, in that process with regard to condition. I mean, a lot of people think that maybe sort of the fact that he didn't have a useful memory allowed him to sort of forget things that were convenient to him. Mm. Um but I, I'd never really felt that he was sort of, you know, he doesn't have a mind that works strategically like that. Um, but also there are times when, you know, he would shut down conversations because he didn't want to talk about stuff. And, and most of the time I was respectful of that. Sometimes I would try and prod a bit, but, but I was very aware that he'd let me into his home. And it wasn't, if he didn't want to talk about anything, it's not like he was some fucking pop star whoring out some shit album that somebody else had written for them. You know, that's what I used yeah, to yeah. do. It's <laughs> like sort of try and <laughs> poke behind the lies there. Um, you know, Drac Draco wasn't trying to sell me anything. So so if he chose not to speak about something, I thought that was fine. I didn't I'd never really felt like he was being disingenuous about anything, I suppose. But what's interesting, I mean obviously given he has such a dramatic face and gets his makeup, his wonderful moustache. Um but because of the way we read people naturally, you know, the notion that we accept that everyone has a mask of some description, and it also mm. changes depending on who you're talking to, there is times when you're holding the camera on him and he's kind of being indignant or he's not being as open as he has been previously, where you kind of get mm. like a kind of, almost like a fiendish child is sort of playing with you. Yes, yeah, you know, well, it's... Um... So Tom, the archivist who who we worked with, um, said to me at one point, he said, well, of course, you do know that in sadomasochistic relationships, it's always the sub who's really in charge. Um, and so, yes, there was a sense there. I don't, again, I don't think Drac really sort of thought about things strategically, but um, I think I think if you live in your own world for as long and as deeply as he had, I think you are... You're very much control in control in that space. Um, so I do, I do sort of feel. I don't feel like he was necessarily um, teasing me, but yes, hmm. I think all, he did I mean have fun with it, really. No, so I say all I mean by it is, is that just the way that we normally read people. Obviously, if you watch the film, it'd be hard to come to that conclusion that he was being manipulative. But there are moments hmm. where you just, if you isolate it and watch it for what it is. You can kind of go, why is he playing with Toby here, or is he yeah. is he really yeah. just not knowing what's going on? But I think actually that was one of the reasons that that I mean, because it wasn't always easy to go and visit him. But one of the one of the things that made it fun was that kind of you know old-fashioned camp banter that we had um, between us, which was largely based on you know really really poor innuendo and so on. But it was lots of fun doing that. Really, he likes him. a cockatoo, doesn't he? I'm sorry? He likes a cockatoo. Yes, he certainly does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was reminded, I once great. interviewed... Um, do you, are you familiar with the artist Franco B, the Italian performance artist? 
Uh, no, I'm not, no. Um, he used to do, like, bloodletting as a performance, so he would have a doctor on hand, have little taps at the kind of joins in your elbow, and then bleed over canvas as a performance, completely naked. Is this the weirdest right. thing? You, 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 I mean, as in terms of what you normally see as art, quite a strange thing to happen. Um, but I went to his apartment, which was just behind uh, Waterloo Station, and it wasn't all hanging pictures, but it was certainly just collage after collage of hardcore gay porn as I walked hmm. in. All the walls were blood red, and the CD rack was a urinal, a stainless steel urinal along the wall, which was kind of like... <laughs> but one of the sweetest <laughs> men you'd ever hope to meet. Did you, feel, did you feel much at home in that environment, Stuart? <laughs> Not at first. <laughs> but... After, there's, a, there's, uh, a, there's a fantastic portrait I know, a collage portrait of um, of George Bush in a in a club in in Soho, which is made up entirely of cunts, really? <laughs> a, a collage of, of, of vaginas and so on, which is I'm very fond of in that way. Yeah, no, it was really just I was just completely thrown when I walked in because I'd never seen a house like that before. But obviously, once I got talking to him, it didn't. The, the house is his house; it didn't matter one bit whatsoever. But yeah, it well, just... I mean, that was very much the case with Drac, is that when I first started filming in there, I sort of initially tried to frame out some of the cocks, and then I thought I was just going to drive myself mad <laughs> trying to do this. Um, it probably means it's never going to get on television, but it would be dishonest as well to to, to cut out the cocks. Um, you know, it's when I showed it to my mum, I think the first time my mum saw it, she was 76, and I was like, were you all right with all the... The cocks and the nipples and so on, and she said, "Well, it's just, it's just him and how he expresses himself, isn't it?" And I think that's that ultimately was how I had to approach it. You know, it is. It's just very much a part of drag. It's sort of, you know, it's very innocent in a way the way he does that. But it's also when I when I in the film and and sort of introduce it, I do sort of say, you know, I feel like um, Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now trying to get people not to look at the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. I think it, it, and it, begs, it begs that question, I suppose, with documentaries, is that when you point the camera one way, you're telling one story, but by not pointing yeah. it behind you, you're already missing off half the story anyway, aren't you? So, Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of... it's. And but I mean that is a the, the sort of subjectivity of the medium and the approach is something that we make very clear from the word go because I think I mean I think to pretend that a documentary is in some way objective or, or mm. some way is presenting the entire truth that is disingenuous. I think I think the sort of if you can sort of make your point of view as clear as possible from the start, then the audience knows where you're coming from. Yeah. Well, look, it's a fa it's a fantastic documentary, Toby, and uh, hopefully you get some more viewers for. Uh... On, on the various ways of the festivals and the video on demand. Now, before you go, I'd like you, as everybody else that comes to the podcast, to recommend me a British film, documentary or otherwise, that uh, deserves a little more kudos in your mind. It's um, it's Peter Watkins's film Culloden, which is, um, I suppose, <laughs> I didn't really realise this until recently, but I think it's probably. I think it's the inspiration for for the sequence in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when the police turn up um, and arrest everyone because you're suddenly sort of taken back into 1970s Britain there. So basically, Culloden is a, a docudrama which um, 
presents the Battle of Culloden as if there was a 1970s documentary camera crew there. Uh, so it sort of um, it describes in very very depressing detail the absolute massive fuck ups on both the British and the and the Scot or the English and the Scottish in inverted um, comma sides. So the sort of military cops that just led to the deaths, the needless deaths of um of of men women and and children and it's um, it's an extraordinary film because the, the 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 sort of action sequences are fairly harrowing but they're they're very low budget so they're sort of um they're more cutaways than anything but the thing that's so striking and it's and it's available on youtube so it works very well on youtube is so much of it is shot up just is shot in in close up of the the participants faces and you even though they're they're just actors you get a real sense of the the calamity calamity and the sort of needless slaughter of everyone and i say english and scottish in inverted commas because a lot of scottish people fought on the side of the english and so on it was all kind of um mm. cocked up there but it's an extraordinary film and it's so powerful and it's sort of you know you know how like it's really frustrating trying to watch something like it's exciting when you find something on youtube and then it's frustrating because the quality is always so bad and and there are adverts and little things that pop up and stuff and you're watching yeah. it on a screen and so on tiny screen generally um but culloden is just it's sort of it's it's incredibly powerful and it's sort of it's it's just it stopped me in my tracks last time i saw it actually on youtube it's an amazing film. Know, so I shall uh, check it out. Well, look, no, do you want to tell us... It doesn't have a very happy ending, though. I just well, I can imagine, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, do you just want to tell us one more time there as to where we can find the film? When it's out. What, Culloden? No, no, sorry, no, your film, sorry. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, well, it's, uh, we, have, we have a website, themanwhosemindexploded.com imaginative title and then uh, and then yeah, for downloads um, iTunes Blinkbox Amazon and Google Play it's the Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.